Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. And you can contact us as well by email ogc at accessradio.biz. Biz is spelt B-I-Z. And check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity. So please enjoy today's guest who studied for a master's degree in mission studies and amazingly has worked within this genre ever since. Our guest was a director of local ministries for British Youth for Christ and is now the missions director for ICS. Our guest also co-wrote a book published in 2006 entitled Young People as Prophets. But what has he seen and learnt since his book was released, especially as the young people are now middle-aged? Why did he want to study for a master's degree in mission studies? What is ICS? And what does a missions director actually do? It gives me great pleasure to hear the answers and more to today's special guest, the Reverend Canon Richard Bromley. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for listening to that waffle at the beginning. Where are we speaking to you from, sir? Hello, Martin. I'm in Coventry, which is the where I've been here now 25 years. We came back here for a few years, we thought, and it's become home. Wow. You like it? I love it, actually. We bought it. We came here because it's near an airport and near a train station and right next to the arterial motorways. But for my kids, it's become home. They speak like Coventry children or people now. <laughs> Obviously, you need to live by an airport because of your private jet, of course. You know, you've got to of store course. it somewhere, haven't you? Yes, the lifestyle I lead. <laughs> if only that were the case. Richard, let's, let's go for it first of all. Five, maybe interesting, maybe not so interesting questions. Let's see how you get on, please, sir. Question number one. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? Okay, it would be a group of people. It'd be Sinead O'Connor, it would be Freddie Mercury, it'd be David Bowie, it'd be Bob Marley, and it'd be Leonard Cohen. And I wouldn't need to ask any questions. I would sit back and just bask in the conversation that took place. Right, well, let's put that. Sinead O'Connor, okay, she died unfortunately recently. Freddie Mercury died a few years previously. Well, more than that, actually, a couple of decades, three decades ago, hadn't it? Yeah. Leonard Cohen died a few years ago. Who was the other one? David Bowie and Bob Marley. David Bowie and Bob Marley. Five people there. So they're all dead, for starters. Yep. They've all had some sort of flirtation with religion, I think that's fair to say. Why did you choose those five people? They were formative musicians in my... I mean, I was never a great fan of Freddie Mercury when I was a kid, but as I grew up, it became... His music was just the background noise of my mm. life. I mean, Bowie was very much so. The Bob Marley stuff, the insistence of the importance of faith in the midst of all of his, his life was just great. And Leonard Cohen, what a prophet of our time. So uh, just the depth of Leonard Cohen. But Sinead O'Connor just moves me. So it's as simple as that, that, you know, I can't say anything deep and meaningful except when she sings, she moved me. So, wow. Wow. We're not talking about just that single not just that single, there were albums and, and her, her other stuff. I was reading um, Bono's book that's just come out recently. Yeah. And you're know, talking about the, the links between all those singers and the, and the sort of journey they went on together. Uh, and it was you know, very moving as he talked about Sinead O'Connor, which is why she got added to the list. Ah. Sorry to sort of drag on on this. The no. other people, if I could do this again. Yeah. Two of the things I would, people I'd invite, 
to a separate meal. Ravi Zachariah to say, what were you thinking? Yes. To say, how did that happen? How can you be a giant in my faith and the faith of many and so, so get it wrong? And not to attack, but to understand because it is shocking. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, I have to say the other guy you've never heard of was a, a fishmonger called Samuel Codner. Yes. Okay, he's the guy that founded my organization. No, I haven't heard of him. I just wanted Okay, to... there you go, because it's a couple of hundred years ago. <laughs> but Samuel Codner, with his friends William Wilberforce and all these others, founded this organization a long, long time ago. And you would love to sit with him and say, what do you think of it now? Yeah. What do you think of what I've done to it? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's brilliant. And, of course, the number of fish puns you could use with him as well. Absolutely. I mean, the, the guy um, went over to Newfoundland and he just saw people fishing and uh, the abject poverty and how the kids had no schools and all this sort of thing. And it was that era of these mainly English and Scottish men who would go and do great things. And um, yeah, so he and Wilberforce and the prime minister came up with an idea and that's what happened. It'd be interesting to say, what do you think of it now? Because what you did is what happens now is very different to what you did. Yes. Yeah. Actually, I have heard of him. More about that in a minute. Okay. <laughs> I've heard of Samuel. Question number two. Who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, please, sir? Okay. Very simple. Amos. Okay. Amos always. Amos the shepherd from Tekoa. Amos who looked at the rich who are living, not caring for the poor, and said, you bunch of cows. That's the, the prophet I love. I love his passion for the poor, for injustice. And it's a book that should be read far more uh, than it is. And the other one has to be Luke 15. But then my kids suffered having to tour with me when I was in itinerant, hearing me talk and using Luke 15 all the time. So my kids will groan if they thought I'd said that. But I do love Luke 15, parable of the lost sheep. Thank you. I was just going to say, for those of us that can't quite remember Luke 15, parable of the lost sheep. Thank yeah. you, Roger D. Question three. This could be interesting then. If you were prime minister for the day and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be, please? It would be England or Britain. The law I would want to impose just even for a day is be kind to refugees. Okay. It's stunned silence there because I don't think anything else needs to be added to no, that. No, there's no joke to be made about it. Is it? Just be no. kind to these people. They've been through everything, even today looking in the news. Just be kind to them. The church I go to here, there's a lady and she has set up a, a ministry or an organisation that cares for refugees that come to Coventry. And I'm so, I'm so impressed with her. So proud mm. of her, what she's done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. You can have a facetious one as well, if you'd like to go oh, yeah. for it. Well, well, in that case, facetious one would be, for goodness sake, get out of your cars. If it's less than a mile, you have to walk. If it's less than 10 miles, you have to cycle. If it's over 10 miles, you can use your car. That would be my law if I could have a facetious one. <laughs> yes, you can. And you have. Thank you. <laughs> Question four, out of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out? Two, we did a 200-year celebration earlier this year mm -hmm. and we spent hours preparing for this but when the day happened it went so beautifully well and there was a moment halfway through 
where all these desperate bits came together and you could sense the spirit of God doing something. And that was great. And I came away going, that was just a great day. The other one is I have a friend in Bordeaux called Lindsay and her family owned vineyards. No, that's, no, I don't want to hear anymore. No, I'm jealous no, already. No, stop. Really end, nice. That's the end of the uh, podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. <laughs> and Lindsay took us out for a, a, a day wandering around the vineyards, going inside various places for a meal, some great wine. So Denise and I spent a lovely day with Lindsay down in Bordeaux. Yeah, special woman, special place. And does she own the vineyards, did you say? Her family do, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I have a great job. <laughs> Question five. What has been your most embarrassing moment to date, please, Richard? Most recently, my daughter got married and my son-in-law was a little nervous about his speech. So I coached him and we practised and he was brilliant. Oh. And get to my bit and I fell apart. I was this the, the sobbing father, so it was hilarious that you know this professional communicator just fell apart. Partly because I'd done the wedding and I'd you know it's quite an emotional moment. To yeah, marry your daughter. Yeah, I was a complete mess, and so they they've kept all the videos and they circulate them regularly of dad falling apart. Oh, brilliant, brilliant! We well, see <laughs> he married your daughter. Obviously, that's because you're a reverend canon. Yeah. And I want to talk more about Samuel, who went over fishing-wise to Newfoundland a couple of hundred years ago, because I've got a feeling that's to do with ICS. Would I be right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, consequently, let's first of all talk about, before we then get into ICS, let's talk about being a reverend canon. What's the difference between a reverend and a canon, first of all? You become a reverend when you get ordained to be a deacon or a, a priest. And so that's any vicar, basically, is a reverend. And other churches use the title as well. In the Church of England, it technically means you've been ordained a deacon or a priest. If you ever become a reverend canon, it means that a cathedral and a diocese, which is where the, the group of churches work from, have given you a, a role. So I have a seat. I have my own chair in the cathedral in Cairo, All Saints Cathedral, where the archbishop there wanted to give me a role as one of the canons and i am outrageously proud of being offered that from a middle eastern egyptian yeah. bishop because to have worked so well that they would like me to be part of their cathedral is such a huge honor so yeah. i've i find i'm always moved to think that those dear middle eastern people would allow me to have anything to do in their their life and working. So yeah, I'm a canon of All Saints Cathedral in Cairo, and it's a wonderful honour, and it doesn't mean a huge amount because I live in Coventry, but it does mean that I care, feel part of, and pray for those people. Yeah. They both begin with C, one slightly colder than the other. Just a little. Just a yes. little. Yeah. But how often do you go over there? I try to get there about once a year. So um, normally there's reasons to be there. We we recruit clergy for there, for a number of places around North Africa and Egypt and Ethiopia. So it's quite common to go there. And I love Cairo. I love the Middle East, but I love Cairo. I'm a, a great fan of that part of the world. And so I feel home there. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I've never been to the Middle East. So enlighten me and others as well then, because you know when we hear about Egypt, 
we know that there is a small Christian community there as well. How secure is it these days to be a Christian in, in, in Egypt, in Cairo in particular? It's about 10% of the population would be Coptic. They are historic Egyptian, going back thousands of years, people. They would trace themselves back to two, 3,000 BC and Moses and all that stuff. They would own some of that history. So the Christian community is a, has a long history there, proud history. Now, obviously, it's a, a Muslim majority country and the, the government has been through various changes. Security is great. You, you never feel insecure. You walk around if you wish to with a dog collar on, you're treated well. Everywhere I've gone, I've always felt reasonably secure. Sometimes I've gone some places which were not quite so wise. Uh, we once had some stones chucked at us, and that was when I was there with my little boy. But I think that was because he was a, a very tall blonde boy in the culture of people who are just medium height with dark hair. But yeah, it's a good, it's a lovely place. It's a great place. And the church there and Archbishop Sammy are just delightful, wonderful, godly people. The the church there, yeah. you go to the uh, the cathedral, there are thousands, I do not exaggerate, thousands of people around it because they feed refugees and they care for the dispossessed and there's language schools and there's all sorts of education. And in the midst of this clamour, there's also an Anglican cathedral. It's an amazing place. When are you next going over, Richard? Well, we're in, in discussion now. It'll be early next year, I expect. Because yeah. I feel a podcast coming on from there, just saying. <laughs> but the people, the, the heroes that you meet there that are never heard of. Yeah. Can I ramble and tell you about please, No, please, too? please, please. There's a guy called Hamdi, who's a, a vicar of a, out there now. And Hamdi was in um, Tripoli during all the troubles. Mm -hmm. And so he was in the church there. And Hamdi, rather than leave the church, slept there all the time to keep it secure because the militias wanted to come in and use it as a sniper tower. Yeah. So he stopped them at the door. He blocked them at the door and said no to these guys carrying AK-47s. And the neighbour got killed by them. It was a real risk to himself. But he would say to them all the time, no, this is the house of Jesus Christ. Surely as good Muslims, you don't want to come here. And he was able to protect that property, but also to protect the witness that goes on there now. So there are people like Hamdi who are heroes of the faith and they're just yeah. off our radar. Yeah, yeah They're just in, in Cairo serving now. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what's he doing now? Uh, at the moment, I think he's in a, a place, a suburb of Cairo he's working in at the moment which again is just vibrant. So I see Hamdi occasionally, but he's, if you met him, you would walk past him in the streets, totally unassuming, but a great hero. Wow, that's fantastic to hear. Thank you. So you're a Reverend Canon. I am. Why did you want to do a master's degree in mission studies? The honest answer, I can give you the sort of, oh, it's all good for my future section, but the honest answer is if you are in Christian ministry in an organisation like Youth for Christ, and you don't invest in yourself, you will find yourself at the end of your time with nothing that you can do. Because what you're great at is Youth for Christ type work and ministry. But after doing that for a, a long time, it can be very hard as to what you go into next. Yeah. So I looked at, it sounds awfully clinical, 
but I realized I need to invest in myself. I've done loads and loads of work, but I've done no study. So I wanted to do a master's that was nearby to where I lived and uh, relevant to what I did. And it was as simple as that. There was a friend of mine in Youth for Christ at the same time, a guy called Johnny Baker. So Johnny and I both did them at the same time because we thought, yeah, we need to invest in ourselves. Is that the same Johnny Baker that released a, a CD in the early noughties? I think it was called Johnny in the Basement or something? Yeah, Johnny's in the Basement, yeah. both of them. Him and his friend, John, John Birch, I think he is. I've never that met John That was a brilliant, Birch. brilliant singer. I really yeah. used to love playing that, interviewed him once on the phone. Wow. Yeah. So he was in Youth for Christ at the same time. And I think we both just realised that you can be awfully godly about the future and your ministry and all these sorts of things. But you have to sometimes realise that if you stay on the same tracks for too long, you find yourself at a dead end and you hit the buffers. And I've seen some of my friends who had come out of Youth for Christ quite bitter yeah. because they didn't know where to go next. So I wanted just to invest in myself a little. Sounds awfully. I'm glad you said that because right at the front end of this podcast, I always say that uh, it's for those people that we want to encourage who maybe don't go to church anymore or for those that are disillusioned. And so this could be the thing that happens. You know, you invest so much time into it, in this case, British Youth for Christ, call it burned out or, or whatever. But what made you want to go into it in the first place, considering that you were brought up in the Anglican tradition, got your Rev degree and everything else like that? What made you want to go into Youth for Christ? It's the other way around. I was in Youth for Christ first. So when I was about 17, I went to Spring Harvest and uh, got to become friends with a guy called Bob Moffat. And Bob and I, Bob was in Youth for Christ at the time. And I just thought, I wonder if I will ever be, dare I say, good enough to, to work for something like Youth for Christ. Yeah. You feel so insecure as a 17-year-old. And so after I'd been to Bible college, I worked in Hull Youth for Christ. Hull is um, an amazing place. It's where God lives. Yeah, yeah. And so that whole Yorkshire thing goes on. And so Hull Youth for Christ, and then um, Youth for Christ the Middle East, and then Youth for Christ, British Youth for Christ, where you've talked about already. So it has always been a long desire to work in Youth for Christ. And I'm very privileged I got the, the chance to. It's a great organisation. It's such fun to work for. That's good. For those who don't really know what British Youth for Christ does, tell us more about it, please. British Youth for Christ and Youth for Christ around the world is committed, in certainly in Britain, to taking the good news of Jesus to young people. It's as simple as that. And they would do that through all sorts of schools work or clubs or events or activities. And more recently, they've changed under Neil O'Boyle, who is the director now, and become more focused on resourcing churches to be effective in outreach. But Youth for Christ, it's in the States, it's in the Middle East, it's wherever you go, there's a Youth for Christ ministry. Brilliant. How many years were you in Youth for Christ? Oh, about 22, 23 years. Yeah, quite a long time. Wow. Yes. And what was the deciding factor of you to say, right, that's it, I've got to leave then? I heard myself saying, we've done this before, I know it doesn't work. I heard myself becoming that person that thought uh, I've been down this loop before and I didn't want to be the sort of person in an organisation that stopped people being innovative because they'd seen it before. Mm. And I heard, I heard myself say it a couple of times. I thought, you know what? I could stay here for, for years. It's great. It's comfortable. I love it. I've always felt God say the best is yet to come. Mm -hmm. And the, the sense of, Settling too much is 
uncomfortable. So I felt I had to, to leave. So I wrote a list of what I'd like in my next role and then started looking. Well, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, did you have any outlandish ones written on there? I mean, yeah, there's a number of things that I wanted out of the role. I wanted I wanted to be able to have some influence in the role. I wanted it to be committed to mission. There was all, there was all sorts of things, but nothing terribly outlandish. There's some very practical things that I didn't want to leave my children who were just growing up at that stage. So I wanted to be nearby. So, yeah. We'll come back to that, if that's all right, later on, because I'd also like to talk about the book that you co-wrote, which I'm fascinated about, and that's called yeah. uh, Young People as Prophets, because we could do a before and after what you've learned from that subsequently, if that's okay. But I have mentioned a couple of times already, ICS, nothing to do with a space station or anything else like that. For those who most probably have never heard of it but are aware of it when they're going on holiday abroad, Tell us more about ICS and your involvement within it, please. Sir. Okay, why ICS exists is to make Jesus known. So it's very similar to you for Christ in that sense. How it does it is through English speaking ministry. That'd be planting churches, supporting churches, working with tourists or travellers or people in resorts and some new work ideas. It used to be huge and it grew, I would say, with the British Empire. And it was around the world. So there's great stories. I could bore you with story after story. But one of the things it did to its credit some years ago is it gave all the work away to people in locations. So it was very foundational in forming uh, the diocese in Canada, Australia, the Bush Church Aid Society. But it, it took its hands off and said, over to you. So it's a shadow of what it was. But that's okay. That's the right thing to be. ICS stands for? Well, yes. Intercontinental Church Society. It sounds like a hotel chain. <laughs> There's no great names sometimes. It's had numerous other names over the course of history. And um, each one is tied to its generation and then has to change. So I just t talk about ICS mm. because it sort of is true. We are all over the place. And we launch to support and care for churches. We don't sort of do much in Africa below the Sahara. There's others that work there, so we don't. And um, I'm in charge. That's my role, which is terrifying. <laughs> Tell us more what in charge actually entails then. No. Well, there's a council. There's a great council. I have, you know, some people moan about their councils they have. Mine's great. They are just amazing people. And again, I could waffle on about them. So I've got a council I work towards uh, under and I have a small team, there's seven of us, and we have about 50 mission partners around the world, probably going furthest east would be Bangkok, furthest west would be Vina del Mar in Chile, furthest south, we're just about sending someone to Cape Town. On oh, the Falkland Islands, we've got Haley in the Falkland Islands, so that's quite a long way down. And the furthest north would be Groningen, which is in the Netherlands. Let me guess, with your private plane, you have to fly to all these places as well. Yeah, yeah it's good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I, I travel a lot. Yeah, there's no getting away from it. I do travel a lot. So next week I'm away for 10 days and I won't bore you with the itinerary, but there's yeah. does mean that you have to travel. Yeah. If only you did have a private jet, mind. you know. But... I, would, I wouldn't use it. I would not use something as bad as a private jet. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't you use it? They're, they're so bad for the environment. I, I do my best not to get off the ground. So I, my next journey, which will be 
reasonably long, will all be done through various ways of getting over to the mainland and then using trains and whatever. So I do my best not to fly. Now, occasionally you have to because you're going to an island or something. Yeah, the Falklands is a bit difficult to get to otherwise. Yeah, I've never been, actually. That's the one I've never been to. But we have a great new person there, a lady called Haley. She's stunning. She's amazing what she's yeah. doing down there. See, I've always wanted to make a documentary series on far-flung places to go and play golf. And uh, the Falkland Islands does have a golf course. So I would like to – yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to go and play that. Yeah. Make a documentary series, obviously, to get around the reasons why I'm going there in the first place because obviously nothing to do with me. Wanting to play golf. That's what I want to do. See, ICS, Samuel, you mentioned earlier on, 200 years ago. What's the history between Samuel and ICS today, please? So Samuel wanted to care for these communities in Newfoundland, and he set up an organisation, a schools organisation, really, that went out there and set up schools and hospitals and such like. But the model replicated, and before you know it, it's in India and it's in Australia, and it's so it, it goes all over the place. And... Then it morphs into something that plants hospitals and schools and churches. And then uh, over time, governments take over hospitals and schools and you're left with the churches. So Samuel, at the start, which is why I was interested to know what he thinks to what we've done to his organisation, because Samuel at the start would have been very focused on caring for the needs of these communities around the fisher people, fishermen, basically, their wives and children and all the rest of it. So that's him. He It just did grow very quickly. There was an era when there were these crazy entrepreneurs who were Anglican vicars, basically. There was a, some people down in Australia who decided they wanted to reach out to far-flung communities, and they asked ICS to buy them an aeroplane. So back to your private jet, we bought them a tiger moth. It cost £200, and this guy, this clergyman, learnt to fly, learnt to fix it, would fly off, lead schools or whatever, you know, services, then fly back to the base. And we've got these pictures of this amazing plane and this brave, brave man doing these sorts of things. How long ago was that? Be about 100 years. I mean, how how old's the tiger moth? It's not very old, is it? Early 1930s. I've got the pictures here. It's hopeless for a podcast, but I've got the pictures here. And uh, it's just amusing to watch this man in all his flight gear and a dog collar standing next to his aeroplane. Wow. Brilliant. Of course, you've got MAF now that does a similar sort of thing, but obviously not in, yeah. in tiger moths. It's very interesting what you said as well, that you know, you, ICS has this history whereby they can then release it to another organisation. And I'm wondering, how many times have you seen it to date whereby you believe you're doing a really good thing, but it means that you're going to be trampling on other people's footsteps in a different organisation, but they think, no, no, we're still going to go ahead. And instead of actually collaborating, you're actually damaging. Yeah, we do see it. Yeah. I'm working with a bunch of people called International Church Planters, and uh, they're mainly American, although some German, and they often get a sense of where they want to plant a church. And because they come fully funded from the States or whatever, they can just appear. And that can have quite an impact. And so what we've been doing together, to their credit, is working out a charter of what does it mean to go somewhere where there's already others and how to do that respectfully, but also still follow the sense of calling of God. 
It's really interesting to do. And these people I'm working with are brilliant because they're thinking like this. They're not just saying, well, we, we think we should do it, so we're on our way. Yeah. It's excellent. It's been a bit of a journey, but we, we gather together and we're all very different. You know, they come from all sorts of various free church backgrounds. And because I've got a free church background, it sort of helps. By free church, I mean Pentecostal. It just goes to show if you work together, it's amazing what can happen, isn't it? I hope so. I mean, there's going to be 101 war stories, but we, we easily pick out where it went wrong when actually there's some very serious, careful, loving people trying to do it right. Yeah. Certainly in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So going around Europe as well then, what's the current state of Christianity, do you think, that you're seeing from an ICS point of view? Younger than Britain. Certainly there's talk of... I'm not going to quote figures because they're always made up, aren't they? Um, but there's um, a huge number of churches being planted in France at the moment. Really? So that's a, a regular occurrence. Our own churches, you have a, an interesting mixture. The further north you go, it appears to be younger churches. Often the further south you go, you get towards this retirees moving overseas and all this sort of thing. As I look around our churches, What's exciting is the migrant churches. Okay. So this morning I was just talking about a church in Grenoble, which is just south of Lyon, which is where there's this migrant church. Now, they are stunning. They are full of energy, full of vision, mostly not legal in the country. Mm-hmm. So there's all sorts of challenges for them. This church is vibrant. The same in Brussels and you, know, you can think about Paris, where we've got churches. There's a real, there's a real life that's coming in because of the mix of cultures that the migrants have brought with them. How many of these migrants would be from a Christian background in the first place? I think it's quite strong, often from Nigeria and Kenya. So there's a strong Christian flavour to what they bring. They, they're from an Anglican background, which is why they turn up at these Anglican churches. And probably more importantly, it's English speaking. English is one of the five languages that they've mastered already. Mm. Um, and it can be more difficult if it's in French or Dutch or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. we often hear in the press, don't we, that the re- one of the main reasons we have migrants wanting to go to France, wanting to get on a boat at their own expense, and there's exorbitant and everything else to get across. The media portrays it and the politicians portray it, that they're, they're what's known as economic migrants. What have you seen? Well, some are. Some are... Um, yeah, I don't want to. They are people who want what I would want, and that's a better life for their kids. Mm-hmm. And so I've got, you know, now there's all sorts of motives behind that. And when we saw with Syrian refugees, a lot of them were very, very able, very professional people who realized that they needed to leave the country. So I can't generalize. I'm not close enough. There's others better than me. Um, some work being done in Calais with the, the church of mm-hmm. the Anglican church doing there. And they'll have more of a finger on the pulse. The people I meet are highly intelligent, very able, very gifted, and realise for them there's a better future in Europe. And a lot of the students doing their PhDs, they're bright kids. They're great fun to be around. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And some have been trafficked. You know, let's not hide the fact. Yes. Some are there because they've been promised one thing, and when they've got to the Europe, it's been something else. Yes. ICS, the only time I've been to an ICS church was, oh, 30 years ago. 
I went skiing with Oak Hall Holidays. I think they're still going, aren't they? Vengen. You went to Vengen. It was indeed. Yeah. It was indeed New Year's Eve, 1993. <laughs> I was there in that very little church. It was gorgeous. It was gorgeous. How many other churches have we got like the one in Vengen? Oh, dear. That you look after? We own about 11. And we have links with many others as well. How many of them are pretty little places like, like Vengen? Five, six. So they were chosen because there was a thing called muscular Christianity last century where mm. Anglican clergy men, men at this time, would go mountain climbing and all these sorts of things. So the first guy up the Matterhorn, Anglican clergyman, he didn't oh, really. Oh, yeah, he didn't get down. He died on the way down. But, you know, they would go there and they'd say, oh, what we need here is a church and they'd build a pretty church. There's loads of them when you go around Switzerland and the like. The challenge for us is working out how to use them now. Yes. How to make them useful as tools for the gospel. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, so that begs the question, so what do you do? We are, it's a challenge. I'm, I'm not going to hide it. We, people fall in love with Wengen and Zermatt and Chateau Day and other places where we've got these beautiful places. And you have to try to disconnect the, the lovely scenery and all the wonderful things from the fact it's there as a place for mission. Mm -hmm. So we, we are always challenged. It's hard work. We're in the middle of a big review at the moment. And the danger is it could just work with one exclusive group of people. And it's got to be a place of welcome for people that work in the chalets, the cleaners, the massive Portuguese population around Zermatt who work on you know, building sites and all the rest of it. So it can't just be for the elite. That's the problem then, isn't it? You want to open it up. Yeah. And people get that. And there's some, yeah. you know, and like I say, my council wrestle with this and they're, they're good people. They think about it. Wildly. Yeah. 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 Well, you've got that then. And I mentioned earlier on about a book that you co-wrote called Young People as Prophets. Yeah. That's a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. 2006, I think it was something like that. Let's look at the reason why you wrote it first. And then we can build upon that. Okay. Why did you want to write it, Richard? This sort of gets a flare out of me, really, because um, I wanted to write it because young people, especially in Britain, are marginalised mainly by the outrageous media and the way it treats, speaks of young people, mm -hmm. the way it talks about jobs and all that. At the time, they were putting up these sirens outside of news agents to keep kids away and this sort of thing. Really? And it was that era when they were trying to stop antisocial, the ASBO era. Yeah, yeah. The negativity about young people, it seemed that they were the one group that the newspapers could go at in a way that doesn't happen anywhere else. You go over to mainland Europe and young people are not treated like that. They are respected and more part of the community than we allow in, in certainly in Britain. So I felt very negative about the way that young people were treated and wanted to bring out some of the positive about the prophetic voice they have, the way they see the world and about how they, they are going to become the, the change that we're going to see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the, the anger that sparked it off. Yeah, it was just that sort of energy that was sparking us off to say, let's not always demonise young people and realise that they are you know, a huge source of energy, life and love. You said the word respect abroad. I've only been to France a couple of times, but I've noticed that actually there's a lot of respect in villages with the elders yeah. and it sort of works down. Yeah. But I think in churches in the UK, we don't have that. And that could be maybe why 
we forget the youngsters and we forget the older people as well who've both got something to contribute to to the churches and that would i would assume also mean prophecy as well i mean what's your definition of prophets and what can a young person do about doing that okay well i'm not using prophecy in the sort of charismatic the says the lord I'm, i'm using prophecy as picturing what could be in the future and and that does happen we do all these you know what what a millennial is like or gen x as it was and all these other things and we see that they change that we have young people who are now far more um, family orientated far more um, respectful that each generation changes and they they are prophetic in what it's going to look like my son who is now what 26 27 has certain values which i think are common amongst other millennials and while you can write them off as snowflake or whatever there is also massive positives there. And so I think they have a prophetic voice for the future. Yeah. That's my analysis. And it's it's weak, but it comes from a point of wanting to say, I was at a, um, a horse riding place yesterday for a meeting with one of my team. And outside were about 15 or 20 kids. And they, the kids that had been had some difficulties and they were on a break and they were just loud and noisy. Yeah. And you look at it and you go, it's delightful. It's precious to see that much energy when most of what we encounter can be so suppressed. So I think there's a prophetic voice that young people have and we should look at them and go, isn't that wonderful? Not shut up. Okay. So you mentioned the snowflake word or wokeism as it can be used as, as well. What's the good things that you see from that then, from a, from a snowflake point of view? What's the good things I see? I, I see people that are caring, are m- way, way more intellect, um, emotionally intelligent than I ever was at that age. I would say that there is a level of emotional intelligence amongst young people that uh, puts to shame people of my age. Um, not to shame, that's the wrong word. But they've just been formed differently. So, I, okay, we can we can use words like snowflake or whatever. yeah. I just think that there's a sensitivity. Now, of course, there's all the, yeah, I'm not stupid. I live in the city. Uh, I see stuff. But um, at the same time, I look at that bunch of guys and girls yesterday messing around uh, and just think it's it's a beautiful thing and we should celebrate it. Yeah. My, my friend was in a, a subway, walking through a subway with his wife in Belgium. And at the bottom of the subway, there was a bunch of young people, about eight or ten young people, and he tensed as he walked past them because it's a scary thing. Yes. It's night, it's a subway. He's going, to, he's going to keep walking. He walks through. And as he gets underneath there, they all part and say, Bonjour, monsieur, ça va? And there's that lovely sense of welcome because they are emotionally mature kids. And that story needs to be told, that there are some wonderful polite kids and they need to be treated well because they are, they're conditioned to getting grumpy responses from us. Yeah, no, exactly. I can identify with that as well. I'm rambling now, but you know what I mean? That, that's what the heart was behind it. Now, what we wrote yeah. was just trying to give some sense of framework to saying, treasure this. It's great. Well, in that case then, because I don't want to keep harping on about why people leave the church because they're disillusioned or whatever. But if you are a youngster that's really on fire for God, maybe you've seen this. But you go to a church and all of a sudden, because you walk into a certain church, there's this legal framework you have to adhere to, say things at the right time, not say things at the right time, all that sort of stuff. Can the church be accused of suppressing 
these teenagers from a, a proper God-given gift that have been given and they can no longer flourish. And as a result, in their 20s or 30s, they then just give up because they're totally disillusioned. I don't like using the word the church because it's a, it's too big. You know, I was down at a church in London the other day where they were longing to have someone in their church that was over 40. Oh, really? So we can often, you know, I live in Coventry where the church is, and my church is quite old. I don't want to generalise that. I'm nervous of making un- unhelpful claims. I think young people grow in the midst of doing. All I've learned from all those years of youth work is the best thing we do for young people is give them stuff to do. Such as? Anything. That's why the, the wonderful Anglo-Catholic church with its choir and sacristans and stuff gives people something to do. It's in the midst of you serving that faith makes sense. If Especially for lads, if it's just about listening and sharing what you think, that's not going to work. It's got to be far more tactile and, and doing. Mm. So the you go to the church that's vibrant and full of young people and and you suddenly see that there's teams of people enjoying doing stuff together and the actual service bit where there might be what structure you just talked about is only part of the life that they're part of yeah you said muscular evangelism or christianity i think you called it from last century yes from last century well we go back the century before that into the 1800s there was another kind of muscular evangelism uh, whereby they realized that church services on a sunday no men would turn up because they wanted to go and play this new sport that was being made legal called football. And so the churches thought, well, how can we combat this? And instead of preaching out, thou shalt not do this, thou shalt not do that on a Sunday, they thought, okay, well, let's form our own football teams. And so if you look at the Football League today in the United Kingdom, in England in particular, because obviously you know, that's where I'm from and been to most of the get grounds, the number of teams that are professional today is because 150 years ago, that church said, hey, what are we going to do about it? Let's embrace it rather than be antagonistic towards it. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a brilliant story, the faith behind football, yeah. Southampton thinks one of them. Everton and Liverpool, definitely. Spurs. Swindon Town, apparently, we don't talk about them. <laughs> I just think if we see church as that moment, that service, then okay. But if we see it as wider about involving and engaging, then there's, there's a chance there's the hope on your website for the book it says young people's voices often say it like it is are countercultural, fragile and frequently ignored as such they share many characteristics of the biblical prophets so when you wrote that okay so we're talking say over 20 years ago what did people think of that quote truth is not much response ambivalence it you know it went out it did what it did it, it wasn't a big book so never got any kickback I think we did a number of tours, not just around the book, but for other reasons, trying to raise the sense of the value of the the young people you work with. And yeah, the church is a great place because you do. It's one of the few places where you cross generations. You go to our church, and there'll be the sort of fourteen-year-old lad doing the PowerPoint, and the old person doing that. And there's not many places where you mix like that. Perhaps school a little bit but it still allows this cross-generational thing to happen. And we just wanted to say, it matters. They are a unique gift to you. Until it becomes territorial, of course. But we'll leave sound desks out of that. Yeah, well, I worked for YFC, and uh, in YFC's mind, we saw the church as the community in the Mm -hmm. city. We didn't see them as 
little denominational units. Yeah, yeah. That's just how we worked. I've been joking about you having a private jet. Let's also joke a bit more and say that you've now, this time, got a, a time machine. If we could take you back in time, say 30, 40 years ago, so that you could meet your former self growing up, what have you learnt in the past 30, 40 years in your Christian faith, in your Christian mission, everything, that you could go back and tell your young lad of 40 years ago? What would you tell him? What have I learnt? Be stronger. Don't be so shy. Don't be so holding back. You have the voice, use it. At the same time, just be a bit more generous. You know, when you're 17, everything's a bit black and white. And the sort of church we went to encouraged that. So I would probably, those sorts of things. There was a moment when I felt God say to me, I was about 17, the best is yet to come. And it's been a mantra that has continued and continued. And I think just to have confidence in that. And of course, the other thing, especially talking about your off-grid agenda, is be careful who you choose as your heroes. Yes. Because probably, I don't know, half of the people that I chose as heroes uh, things went a bit wrong for them towards the end. And you just have to say people are broken people and to put people on pedestals is a dangerous old thing to do. One of the great things I've privileges I've had is working with a number of people that were my heroes, and that's been great. But you just become aware that they're just people. So, yeah. Yeah, they're just human as well. It's certainly in the United Kingdom, we're very good at making heroes, and the next thing we want to do is put them down big time. Yeah, well, other nations do that as well. Australians loved, they call it the poppy syndrome. If you pop your head up, they'll just chop it off. So there's other nations that do that very well. Well, let's go back in time a little bit still in your time machine, because you made reference to the people who would get to the end of the time working for you for Christ, for instance, and unlike you, didn't sort of embrace another idea and then got disillusioned. What would you say to them? Well, some carried on really well in YFC and did so others i watch and just wonder how how do you find your energy i mean what i'd say to them what i'd love to you know i've been doing this now what 37 years yeah what i would want to say to new people in ministry is invest in yourself you are better for the people you serve if you continually think about how can i grow how can i keep learning and developing so I wouldn't want to say anything to my colleagues, to my friends, my co-workers, because they made their own choices. They're my mates. I like them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've just seen a few that it's been a struggle for. And I hate to think of people getting to the end of a great time serving and then going, oh, dear, what now? Yeah. A little lost. And that's a shame. But I'm not, I'm not thinking of anybody. So if anyone listens to this, no, no, no. hey, they think it's me. It's, it's not you. No. <laughs> this is a good point because there will be people listening who feel maybe lost at the moment, stroke, disillusioned, whatever, and they're not realising that they're actually at a crossroads. And you've suddenly come out of a turning with this big banner on your, your lorry saying, invest in yourself. So in the remaining time before we get to find out who your Christian hero is, let's just look at that if that's all right what do you mean by investing in yourself and what can you do oh so many answers there is a problem that the the ministry of god that you fulfill in these sorts of things that we do actually destroys the life with god that you have yourself so the importance of having a, a faith that's still valid and alive and vibrant and growing really matters so mm. to do the retreats to do the things that keep you close to jesus 
so that you sound naive, but you still want to be a good daughter or son of Jesus in your in what you do it matters. When I interview people, I ask them, what are you reading? I do lots of interviewing for clergy. I ask them, what are you reading? And my heart drops when they've not read since theological college. I want them to be vibrant and to be thinking about what's going on and to keeping their mind going, learning still. So that's the sort of passion I'm after in them. And you need mates. You need to still keep mates that you've not become so lost in your ministry that you have no good friends that you just can be normal with. And that then there's issues around family and church and all sorts of things. I mean, I, I struggle with church because when you dip in and out of church, it's actually not what I was talking about before, where you it's a place where you serve. It becomes a place where you consume. And because of my lifestyle, I go to church in Coventry once a month or so. And it's very easy to see that as, as a consumer experience. So finding a way of keeping the community alive in you is quite hard. Isn't that also a case, though, of investing in yourself just by going to church and just being there? Because we're also very good at maybe doing, 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 being busy, which we've discussed in previous podcasts. Yeah. And, and we, we've worked out that sometimes God didn't actually create busy, you know. <laughs> You just you do it for a variety of reasons, and sometimes you just be whoa, just whoa, just chillax. Yeah, whatever the current word on the streets is these days, yeah. and you need inflow. I went to Moorlands, which is a Bible college in the south of England, mm -hmm. and it was brilliant because they spent so much time saying to you, "Think about what it's like." And they used to get people in who'd been doing it for a long time, talking about some of these things. It's great preparation. It worries me that certainly in my world, Anglican clergy don't have enough time thinking about what it means to look after themselves, what they need to learn to thrive. I want to walk away. I will stop doing what I do in three years' time. I want to walk away with a, a smile on my face and a tear in my eye because I still love it rather than be so burnt by it that I just can't wait to go. And uh, I think that matters. I think ministry should be a joyful thing to do with all, I mean, and there's loads of trouble. There's loads of stress. I, I get that. You know, my life has those moments. I'm not naive, but I do want it to be joyful, to be fun. Imagine me then, as someone at the crossroads of my life. I come to you. I feel burnt out. I feel as if I've done as much as I can do in this particular ministry. I come to you and I say, Richard, I'm coming to you. I'm looking for you for advice. I respect what you do. What can I do? What would you say? It's not going to be an answer that's a great soundbite. I would say, let's journey together for a while. And I would talk to them regularly for a period of time and we would unpick it. I know we love quick soundbites that newspapers and all the rest can use, but the reality is it it's, needs time when somebody walks alongside somebody else. And so I, I do that all the time. This morning I was doing that with somebody who's just about to move into another place. We, we sort of need time for each other where we can ramble for a while before we get to the, the real issue. Well, that's a great answer. That's not a soundbite answer. Well, it is a soundbite, actually, because you can use it. Yeah. yeah. You're just going to journey with me for that time being. Yeah. So I give people six months of my time. I say, oh, I'll meet with you every month for six months, and we go through. And I, I've got about four people at the moment I deal with like this. And it's always at liminal moments. And by that, I mean moments of great change. And so... I think when we're going through moments of great change, you need someone to walk with. Yeah, that's a great answer. <laughs> Thank you.
that's a brilliant answer. No, thank you. Thank you for that. But it's not a course and it's not a simple thing. It's just time. Yeah, but it's something that we can all do. Yeah. You know, just to be there. Someone could come around and say, look, blah, 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 I'm feeling really bad. And you could say, well, I'll tell you what, just come here as a safe house. We'll have a cup of tea, have a bun, maybe have a curry, and we'll just hang out. And once a month we'll do that so you can share what's going on and I can listen. And hopefully you will work it out, especially if you read your Bible again, or maybe you're reading the Bible anyway. So mm, yeah. I, th I think that's a great answer. Yeah. We, when we worked in Youth for Christ, we were all trained in being coaches, and it was the best thing. It was the best thing because it stopped you thinking you had something to say and realised you had a gift in being there to listen. And it was a superb two weeks of training that they did for us all. Yeah. yeah. And that's what we used to do as, as a fellow training officer, really train people how to do all these things, you know, and this doesn't work well in radio. So, yeah. <laughs> but it's like you're given two of these, two of these and one of these, use them in the right proportion. Yeah. And of course you point to your ears first, you give them two of these, give them eyes, two of these, one point to your mouth. You've only got one of those, use them in the right proportion. And that's yeah. basically what you're saying as well. Isn't it? Yeah. Richard, thank you so much. That is phenomenal. Invest in yourself. I'm going to write, I've, in fact, I'm not going to write it. I have written it down. That's a great way to sum that up. Thank you which just leads on very nicely. You've talked about Christian heroes and uh, we always finish a podcast by asking our guest who their Christian hero is. And I always preempt it by saying it has to be dead and somebody not out of the Bible. So Richard Bromley, the Reverend Canon Richard Bromley, who is your Christian hero, please? Ken Bailey. Ken Bailey is an American theologian. You know, we went to church together in Cyprus and he wrote Poet and a Peasant hugely influential book but he was passionate about luke 15 go back to that mm -hmm. about serving jesus and about the middle east he would be the one that i would grab at this point in time if you ask me tomorrow it'll be somebody else what do we know about ken bailey he was in beirut he was a professor of theology in beirut and he came to live in cyprus which is where i used to live and we got to know each other there he wrote books from a Middle Eastern perspective. And that changes the way you read them. Because if you read a book from a Western perspective, you bring all our assumptions. If you read it from a Middle Eastern perspective, it suddenly comes alive. So pick up Poet and Peasant or anything he's done on Luke 15. He's all over the internet because he, before he died, he decided to record as much as he possibly could to pass on the legacy. He was a stunning person when, when he preached, the church was full, because the wisdom that the man had, that man remain a whole person, that he liked foraging for wood on the beach and carving things. You know, he wasn't just obsessed in one area. Well, that's a great answer. Thank you very much indeed. And his name is Ken Bailey, and he can be found on the internet. Reverend Dr. Kenneth Bailey, but yeah, Ken Bailey. Well, can I just say, Richard, it's been brilliant having you on. Thank you so much. And invest in yourself is title of this podcast i think people will need to okay. hear the rest of it to understand why he came up to that title but uh, that is brilliant and where will richard be going over the next few months so next week i'm going to um around northern europe so france belgium uh, netherlands and then i'm off to ibiza later in the month and then i'm off to Cannes later in the, in next month after that so mainly around europe before christmas yeah. And are you into the rave scene at all, as you mentioned, Ibiza? Ibiza, we have a great church. There's a guy there called Adrian that runs the church there. He's great. He's really sensitive to what's going on because you've got all these people that are new age seekers and such like, and he runs a church, which is just 
able to connect wisely in that place. Would he be the kind of person that would go out on a Friday and Saturday night round all the clubs in Ibiza and just look after them? Is that the kind of thing he does? When you're in Ibiza, you've got 24-7 already. So yeah. the stuff that they do, and, and they live their lifestyle, so they're getting up late and can do that thing, start at 10, finish at 6 in the morning. His wife does a little bit of that, and he's connected. But if you're doing the sort of hours that we do, where you get up in the morning and go to bed at night, he doesn't have a huge amount of resources left. The same for our guy in Corfu. There is Kavos and there's all sorts of stuff that can go on there, but it operates on a different time frame than we do. Richard Bromley, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a sheer pleasure to listen to your wise words. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been fun to be with you, Martin. Thank you.